Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 159. Rest in peace. Today we're going to talk about Byzantine burial customs and the resting place of emperors. This was partly inspired by Basil II's unusual decision to be buried alone, away from the rest of his predecessors and family. For those who are not so thrilled that we're ending this year on a downbeat note, you can also blame listener K.S., who asked specifically about imperial funerals. But to be fair to him, it's a good question. Before we move to the palace and the Church of the Holy Apostles, I wanted to look at the funerals of the average Byzantine man and woman. Sadly, a much more frequent ceremony than most of us would be used to, because of their high mortality rates. And what we discover is a lot of similarities to our own ceremonies today. Assuming that the unfortunate person lies sick in bed, then the first concern of their family upon death was to close their eyes and mouth. This is a natural act in most cultures, to give the deceased some dignity and protect mourners from further shock. But in Byzantium, it was also believed that evil spirits would attempt to enter the body through the open mouth. A ribbon or cord was usually placed around the jaw to prevent it from opening and keep the face in a neutral pose. Once the family were ready, the body was lowered from its sickbed onto a cot or stretcher. Justinian and others had actually passed laws about importance of stretching the limbs of the dead out into the traditional resting pose before rigor mortis set in. The body was now moved and prepared for the funeral. For the wealthy, servants would perform this task, but out on the farm, the family or someone knowledgeable in the village would take charge. The body was bathed in warm water. Again, the idea that evil spirits were lurking and needed to be washed away was a consideration beyond cleanliness. Then perfume, 
wine, myrrh, and various other concoctions could be applied to cover up the smell, to battle decomposition, and give the body a more pleasant look. The corpse would then be dressed, usually in white, to indicate purity, now that the deceased had left this sinful world and was headed for a better place. Simple linen for the poor, more elaborate garb, the wealthier you were. Those who held a particular office, or served in the military or clergy, would usually be dressed in their finest, or at least given the insignia of their rank. Once they'd been prepared, their hands would usually be tied to their chest, and their legs might be bound as well. They would then be placed in a coffin and laid out wherever the funeral was to be held. Usually the family home, but priests would be placed in a church, and monks and nuns in their monastery or convent. Often an icon would be placed into their hands, while the pagan custom of wrapping a wreath of flowers around the head was observed by some. The next morning, visitors were invited to come and pay their respects and console the family. In the afternoon, the funeral procession would begin, ideally led by a priest. Paid singers or mourners might be present, or the wider family would perform these roles. Towns and villages alike would have graveyards on their outskirts. The wealthy might have their own mausoleum or above-ground tomb, but the average family would simply bury the dead in the ground in a coffin, or perhaps not even that, sometimes just a shallow grave surrounded by rocks and covered with a board or tiles. The priest would lead prayers and sprinkle the body with oil, water and earth. A small marker with symbols denoting Jesus Christ conquers, or something like that, might be placed next to the body. Despite the church discouraging it, many people put coins, jewellery and other possessions into the grave. John Chrysostom railed against this in his time, in part because the wealthy were being buried with goods which could have fed the poor, uh, but in part because this practice encouraged grave robbers. With the body buried, the family would now return home to eat together. They would usually return three, nine, and forty days afterwards to say prayers at the grave. Inscribed or simply painted tombstones would mark the spot. Not the most uplifting material, I know, but it's interesting how little change there's been to some of our rituals over the millennia. Back to listener K.S. then. He asked about imperial funerals. The procedure was pretty similar, but of course much grander than for the common folk. According to information in Constantine VII's Book of Ceremonies, there was a prescribed period of six hours for private mourning by the imperial family. Then, the body would be dressed in full regalia. A long silk tunic, purple robe, diadem, everything. If an ageing empress's hair had thinned, then it was not unheard of to put a wig on her at this point. 
they would then be placed in a suitably adorned coffin and taken to the triclinium of the 19 couches. This was the famous dining hall that could seat a couple of hundred people. Here, the senators would pass through to pay their respects or even bestow a last kiss, though we're not told where. For Justinian's funeral, a special cloth was woven with scenes of his triumphs, and this served as the pall that covered the coffin, and doubtless other emperors had similar tributes paid them. This would all take several hours, then the actual funeral procession would begin. The conceit of this was that the dead person was more asleep than deceased. They were positioned and dressed as if they were still alive, and courtiers were bowing and showing them the same respect they would have done the day before. And this is reflected in the beginning of the procession, where the master of ceremonies would call out, Depart, Emperor! The King of Kings, Lord of Lords, calls you. As if this were another church procession that the Emperor was being asked to take part in. This fitted nicely with Byzantine theology, where, of course, death was no more than the end of the first part of a life's journey. The Emperor would soon wake in another world and begin the next chapter. And the procession would move now to the Chalk Gate, the reception hall of the palace, where the patriarch and clergy of the Hagia Sophia would take charge. They led chanting, which accompanied the procession, and again the call would go up, Depart, Emperor! The King of Kings, Lord of Lords, calls you. The assembled mourners now moved off down the messy toward the Church of the Holy Apostles. The streets would be cordoned off and well guarded, with crowds out to catch a glimpse of their departed sovereign. The coffin, or beer, would be carried by the senior sword-bearers of the court. Chanting of psalms continued all the way along the road, and once they reached the church, the funeral service would take place. Another chant would go up, Take down the crown from your head. The emperor's work was done, and it was time to lay down the burden of office. The crown was removed and replaced with a ceremonial head covering. Eventually, it was time to place the body in its final resting place, usually a sarcophagus made of precious material. The final call would be heard, Enter, Emperor, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, calls you. Then the body would be lowered in and the lid placed on top. What about this resting place, then? The Church of the Holy Apostles. A listener, K.S., asked whether all the emperors were buried there, whether overthrown rulers received a full state funeral, and whether the graves of the great were visited and venerated. Fortunately, thanks to Constantine Seventh and a few other sources, we actually have a pretty good idea of the history of imperial burials. So here is a full account of the burial sites of all Byzantine emperors from Constantine I 
to Basil II. And this won't take as long as you think. The Church of the Holy Apostles was founded by Constantine the Great with the intention of it being a shrine to his memory. He chose one of Constantinople's seven hills for the site along the northern branch of the Messi. This meant that it would be visible, accessible, and on a nice procession route to the palace. He didn't simply build a church. He cordoned off a large site which he imagined would grow over time. Next to the church would be his octagonal mausoleum, and the rest of the grounds would house and provide for the many custodians and clergy that would be needed to run the place. Constantine was determined to fix himself in the calendar of the church. The anniversary of his death was to be celebrated with an annual feast and gifts to the people. The prayers of the public and the clergy were going to protect the Vasilefs in death. Hence the need for the site to expand to accommodate all this pious traffic. As best we can tell, the mausoleum was designed to have Constantine's tomb opposite the entrance, with room for twelve other sarcophagi around it, i.e. room for the cenotaphs of the twelve apostles. This arrangement made Constantine almost akin to Christ himself, and so after his death his son Constantius II wisely removed the other memorials to avoid this daring statement. With space to fill, Constantius decided to make the mausoleum into the family burial chapel. At this stage, though, it wasn't common for imperial families to all be buried together. At Rome, the emperors often constructed mausoleums just for themselves, while in the Christian era they might be buried in different churches. So when Julian the Apostate died, he was not put in the mausoleum. Instead, he was buried in a stoa, an annex which was added to the north of the Church of the Holy Apostles. Jovian was placed in there too, while Valentinian was buried in a sarcophagus in the main body of the church. Valen's body disappeared in the mire of the Battle of Adrianople, so there was no funeral to hold. An exception was made for Theodosius I, who was placed alongside Constantine and Constantius II in the mausoleum. Partly in view of his long reign and conspicuous piety, uh, but perhaps also because he campaigned for it to aid the legitimacy of his dynasty. Uh, that is speculation, though. Uh, after him, there was a reversion to type, with Arcadius and Theodosius II being buried in another stoa on the south side of the church. I should add at this point that empresses and children who died young were also interred in the stoas alongside their father or husband. This left no more room in these annexes, but by now it had become traditional to bury the imperial family at the Holy Apostles' complex. It just wasn't clear where else to store the bodies. It was the Emperor Marcion, then, 
who decided to return to the mausoleum of Constantine and begin to fill up the empty spaces with his family. This brings us into the era of the podcast. So Marcion, Leo I, Zeno, and Anastasius were all placed in the mausoleum along with their families. However, this left the room looking pretty full. There was space on each side of the sarcophagi, but no more. When Justin died, he was buried in the convent of St. Euphemia. But of course, that wasn't going to be good enough for Justinian. Not only did he rebuild the crumbling church, but he also added a new mausoleum, the Mausoleum of Justinian. This was cruciform in shape, leaving three obvious spaces at the head of the cross, and these would be filled by Justinian himself, Theodora, and Justin II. Although there was lots of room in the long space leading up to the three sarcophagi, it was again felt that the room was essentially full. Tiberius II was buried in the main building of the new church. No decision was needed for the next two emperors. Maurice was beheaded across the Bosphorus and buried in the church of St. Mamus. While Phocas was killed by Heraclius, his body burnt and the ashes thrown into a common grave. Heraclius himself, though, was laid to rest in the mausoleum of Justinian, and so most of his relatives followed suit, including Constantine IV. Constans II was an exception. You'll recall that he was murdered with a soap dish in Syracuse, Sicily, and was buried locally in the monastery of St. Gregory. Then we come to the period of chaos before the siege of 717. Justinian II was killed out in Anatolia, and his body was thrown into the sea. And before that, he'd done the same with the corpses of Leontius the General and Absamar the Admiral. Vardan the Armenian was blinded, died later, and was buried in the monastery of Dalmatoi. Artemius the Secretary was eventually beheaded by Leo III after the siege, but Leo seems to have had a soft spot for him, as he allowed him to be buried in the mausoleum of Justinian. Finally, Theodosius, the tax collector, who abandoned the palace willingly to become a monk, may have been buried in Ephesus. We're not sure. With Leo in charge, the Isaurians were buried in Justinian's mausoleum. So Leo III, Constantine V, and Leo IV. Constantine VI was blinded by his mother, died later, and was buried in the monastery of Lady Euphrosine, which was in the capital, but away from the public. Irene was exiled by Nicephorus I, and she was buried on the island of Principo, one of the prince's islands, in a convent that she'd founded there. This being the era of iconoclasm, though, Constantine V's remains were taken out and burnt upon the restoration of orthodoxy and it's possible that Irene's were exhumed and put in his place, but again, we don't know. Nicephorus I was killed by Crum's men at the Battle of Pliska, 
Probably his remains were burnt or rotted away, but it's possible his skull was turned into a drinking cup. Michael Ragave was buried on Proti, uh, another of the prince's islands where he'd been exiled, as was the body of Leo V the Armenian, who had been hacked to pieces by Michael of Amorium. Michael survived the subsequent siege of Thomas the Slav to be buried in Justinian's mausoleum, as was his son Theophilus. But the room was now truly full. Remember the empresses and children that I'm not mentioning. There just wasn't space left for anyone else. Michael III was then murdered in his drunken sleep by Basil I, who quietly buried him out in Chrysopolis. But later on, Basil's son Leo VI brought the body back and buried it in the mausoleum of Constantine. Yes, with no more room in Justinian's building, Basil decided to return to Constantine's tomb. This had great appeal to that most upstart of emperors, as it associated his dynasty with the founder of the city. The only downside being that there would be no room to stand beside anyone's sarcophagus. Every available space was filled, so Basil, Leo, Alexander, Constantine VII, Romanus II, and Nicephorus Phocas were all buried in the mausoleum alongside their families. It was amusingly congested at this point, and the dead were forced to share their tombs with other family members. Alexander rested eternally with his father Basil. The Porphyrogenitos was given the same treatment, placed beside his father, Leo the Wise. Romanus Lecapinos always knew that his position was vulnerable. Since he was only keeping the seat warm for the Macedonians, he decided to build his own mausoleum. He turned his private estate in the city into a monastery called the Mirileon, which still stands in Istanbul today. All of the Lecapinai were buried there, including his daughter Helena, which is interesting because she was Constantine VII's wife and outlived him, but apparently chose to rest with her father. John Zimiskis, also suspecting that the Macedonians might not want him around, had an elaborately decorated tomb prepared in the Chapel of the Saviour in the Chalk itself. Zimiskis was therefore buried in the palace, unlike any of his predecessors. Perhaps the crowded state of the Mausoleum of Constantine influenced Basil II in his decision to be buried alone at the Hebdomon. His family had instituted the custom of praying at the tomb of Constantine the Great during Easter. This associated them with him, while also allowing them the chance to pray at their family shrine. This wasn't quite what Constantine the Great had wanted all those years ago. He'd imagined generations of supplicants sending prayers to the Lord on his behalf. Maybe Basil learnt from that, deciding that he must have his own public resting place, where a dedicated clergy 
and a trickle of well-wishers could keep sending up prayers for his soul. And not to mention the soldiers who would finish their drills on the parade ground before popping into the church to thank him for leading their fathers and grandfathers to glory. Finally, three years after Basil's death, his brother Constantine would join the ranks of the dead. Having made no great plans for himself, Constantine VIII was placed in the mausoleum of his great namesake. At this point, there was no more room around the sides of the walls. His sarcophagus was simply placed in the centre of the room. Presumably, anyone wanting to visit the tombs would now have to turn sideways repeatedly to navigate the maze of memorials, a quite undignified spectacle. From that point on, new burial sites were found for each emperor. The era of the Holy Apostles was over. In a curious parallel, it will be around the middle of the 11th century that the Great Palace will also be abandoned. Future imperial families would find the Palace of Lachernae a more comfortable location. All of which makes this a strangely fitting time to let both locations rest in peace. Back to listener KS's question then. A people could not visit the two mausoleums. They would only be opened on ceremonial occasions and not for the public. The few who were buried elsewhere could be visited, but of course, after a generation or two, even the greatest of emperors became just names in a history book. Basil's tomb was forgotten about during the subsequent centuries and was only rediscovered in 1260. As for those who were overthrown, there would be no state funeral. No public acknowledgement of their reign would be encouraged by those who'd usurped them. Zimisces gave his uncle Nicephorus the honour of being buried in the imperial mausoleum, but it was done quietly, with no ceremony. Leo V probably received a small service from the clergy on Proti, as would other imperial exiles. Only in death would an Irene or a Michael III receive their full honours. That brings us to the end of this episode and the year. As I've mentioned before, after the holidays I will be researching our next Byzantine story and then getting into the meatier end-of-century topics. Thank you all for helping me get through another 12 months. I'm very excited about the year ahead with the possibility of visiting Istanbul itself. Some of those imperial sarcophagi are still there, along with the Le Cabinai mausoleum. Before I go, I just want to tell you about Audible.com. I know, I know, you've heard it all before. For those who've tried it and liked it, you can switch off. But for the rest of you, I just wanted to let you know about my own personal experience. Um, I've listened to audiobooks over the years on and off, and the experience varies depending on the quality of the book, obviously, but also the quality of the reading, and that can drastically change your experience. Right now I'm working my way through Tom Holland's Dynasty, The Rise and Fall 
of the House of Caesar. Tom's an amazing writer, but it can be a slog to get through, especially when you're used to the short length and quick pace of podcasts. Waiting for a book to get going can be tricky. It's only recently that I invested in Audible and began to listen to things other than books, and I've loved it. I like to jump around and constantly be entertained on commutes and breaks from work. And now this is all very English, but recently I've listened to The Mixer, a soccer book, Fibber in the Heat, a cricket book, Badil and Skinner Unplanned, a TV series, and Cabin Pressure, a radio comedy show. And I'm really happy. It's like having a second app full of podcasts on my phone. Audible has sucked me in. I uh, actually bought... Um, they make an offer for you to buy three extra credits for £18, which is a great deal because some books cost 20 or £30 on their own. Anyway, if getting your hands on more quality podcast-like material sounds good, then I suggest you give Audible a try. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic to sign up. You'll get one credit free to start with and another each month. Go to their search bar, type in something or someone you're passionate about and see what they have to offer. Maybe you'll get hooked like I have and I'll consider any referral as a nice Christmas present. Thanks again and see you all in 2018. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.